welcome to Tales from the Teacher's Lounge. I am your host, Lauren Morris, and we're here to talk about teaching improv. Today's episode features Josh Nichols, who's been performing improv for 25 years. He co-founded Spectacles Improv Engine, created the Orange County Improv Fest, and co-founded the Improv Cup, a charity improv tournament in its seventh year. He performs with Ounce of Behavior and Community Theater 3000. He focuses on organic, grounded improv as a student, teacher, and performer. On a personal note, he's also just an amazing human being, fantastic to be around, and just a great positive influence in my own life. It's a joy to get to talk to Josh, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. He really has some great insight, and I love his approach to teaching. So sit back, relax, and thank you for listening to Tales from the Teacher's Lounge. Good, good, good. All right, um, thank you for joining me, by the way. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. Yes. Let's just have start ha- I mean, I feel like talking improv is going to be simple enough, <laughs> right? Sure, we do it all the time. Right? Uh, but I'm really excited to talk about teaching improv. Uh, right. So uh, how long have you been teaching improv? Um. I have, we started a drop in around five years ago. Um, and I was been coaching for probably about 10 years. So I know there are different things, but they involve, there's been diagram overlap, uh, you know, what you're trying to achieve with them. Yeah. Do you think that having the coaching background first helped the teaching or do you think that there's so different? How, I mean, I guess how similar and different do you think coaching and teaching are? Uh, I think that there's enough of an overlap that I definitely was helped because essentially the way it worked for me is I was the only one in a team that decided to go and get more training. And so I would get training and then I brought it back to this team uh, that I kept coaching with the stuff I was learning. And it was kind of a playground or a sandbox to where I could make mistakes and learn how to, how to coach and how to inter- interact with people and uh, stimulate growth. And then so when I started teaching our drop-ins, um, I had that background to start from, but I still had a ton more room to grow, uh, learning how like people just walking in, just knowing them that day, um, listening to them, trying to make an impact, how to, how to interact with them in a, in a positive way that created positive change. It was a, it was a, there's tons of more skills involved from coaching and teaching, but, uh, having the ability to make mistakes, take risks in a way that didn't cost me, like someone going, well, I'm never coming back here, uh, was a huge boon to, uh, to our training program. Now, with the, with, so since you started with workshops, were your workshops building on one another or it was sort of like just drop in, have fun, or we're focusing on X, Y, or Z this time around? Uh, in the very early days, it was like, come on in, we're going to have fun. Okay. And the first half we play games and the second half we would do scene work. Because uh, we were a very short-form, heavy community um, when we started. Uh, as they've gone on, they don't build on each other in any way. Uh, we now have a curriculum that does that. Um, but as they got started, we just started getting different focuses for every class. We'd say, like, oh, this is what we're going to teach on this time. Um, and it was usually whatever we were passionate about or inspired by during the time. Uh, and that's what we would pass on to the students. So when you started with the workshops, how many of you were running workshops? Uh, in the beginning, uh, it was me and then my uh, partner, Matt Thomas. He would do the short form section and I would do the scene work section. Okay, so the two of you then would probably have a discussion maybe before class or whatnot about what you're looking to do that day. Is that kind of how yeah. that was working? Okay. Yeah, uh, I would... I would um, try and teach scene work stuff that would help actually the games that he was focusing on. We tried to let one build into the other. Uh, there's just a lot of satisfaction of when things seem like a process, when you start with like a very small version of it with a lot of controlled variables. And as the day goes on, you, you get less and less control over the variables and let the students make mistakes and uh, take, you know, take flight a little bit more. Now you said, so now if we skip forward a little ahead now, you guys have, um, when you officially launched your leveled class, are there even leveled classes right now? No, we don't have levels. We have focuses. We started those a year ago. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like limitations make us stronger, you know, cause you have to try and overcome certain things. And we realized because of our time, uh, our time issues that if we had levels that we would run into problems of, 
oh, we need to make sure that all our level three students can do this class at this time, you know, and you have to keep progressing people. And I, I run into, when I talk to people that have levels, they have that problem consistently. I also feel like the way I teach, uh, I believe that focusing on one skill uh, over and over and over again, giving them reps, giving them the wisdom, showing it works, giving them the tools to make it happen, and then giving them the reps to uh, make it a habit are effective, it is an effective method um, for them at the end of it to start doing it, have conscious success at it, and then ultimately hopefully have unconscious success during the process. As opposed to like every week we're going to focus on this one skill. Uh, so we take four weeks and we practice on one particular skill in improv over that four weeks. Um, so then uh, students can retake those classes um, or we can offer them not in any particular order. We can offer them as needed. So meaning uh, we don't have to wait for enough level three students that can do a Wednesday night. Right. Um, yeah, so it's a way, like it was one of those things like, wow, this really helps us uh, business-wise, but ultimately it fits in with our, um, our philosophy of how we learn improv or how we learn a skill or a technique. Uh, so it was one of those things where like, we wouldn't have come up with it if we didn't have that limitation. But the limitation led to something that we're really proud of. So when you started to build that, when you knew you were going to launch, if you looked at your four-week class, do you start with, you when you're building personally, do you start with um, going forward in your curriculum or you start with the end goal objective and then working back through the curriculum? Uh, we, yeah, we definitely started with the goal of uh, making the student by the end of it either consciously succeeding at our technique or unconsciously succeeding. So we were trying to build habits. So we went in a method, so we went in with the methodology of like, how do you build habits? Um, and then we backtracked from there. Um, and four weeks, unfortunately, just because of the way of things, I think we should have longer classes, we're working towards it. But four weeks is a good start at it. And we have a decent success rate at conscious success, the conscious success near the end of it. Um, so yeah, we worked backwards. Long story short. Uh, are you, how many teachers then, so how many different um, focus classes do you have and how many teachers are doing those different focus We're early in the process. We're only a year in. Um, we have nine focuses currently. We think that we're going to be adjusting them here and there. Uh, and what we do current, uh, right now I think at this point we've got four people teach. Uh, they teach and we're ramping up for more. Um, but it started with just me, essentially, and then we've added people. Um, we're trying to make sure that everyone's up to snuff. But the people that teach their focuses are people that have shown an expertise in that particular focus. Like, we have a player that's great at emotions consistently, plays emotionally on stage, knows how to justify, knows how to say the why to have an emotion, knows how to express it, knows how to heighten it, knows how to use space work to show it. So he will teach our emotion classes. Uh, so when people learn emotion from him and they go see a show, they go, wow, he's doing what he taught. And that's a big part of it. Uh, at the fir at first, uh, I was teaching almost all the focuses and I don't think in my play I express all of them uh, well, uh, but I understood them all. Um, I'm trying to build up a, a group of teachers that go, wow, uh, this person kills at point of view, so he should teach point of view. Uh, but that's a process, because not only should you be good at point of view on stage, it's a process of being a good teacher because I'm sure, as you know, being good on stage and being good in the classroom are two different things. Um, so it's hard to build up people that are good at teaching and at performing uh, and definitely teaching to our standards of what we're trying to achieve. What are you doing then when you see someone, you're like, oh, that person probably or could be a candidate for teaching. Do you guys have a train the trainer program? How does that look? What's your process for that? So we approach the people that we want. We make sure that they're jazzed about it because they have to love or wanting to do it. It can't just be about the money because I think students smell that. Um, so uh, once they're into it, we start giving them a drop-in uh, class where we help them with like what they're going to teach, and then we watch and note during it. We're always there to uh, we're always there to uh, like control the process if it got un un unruly. But then afterwards, we go eat lunch and like we go. This is what we think you can work on. This is what was good, and then it's a process. And so it's a matter of like giving them notes, giving them the opportunity, and the risk uh, of taking that chance. Um, but it's worked out so far. We've built, I believe we built three, I mean, not including me. We've built, I went to the drop-in process as well, by the way. But we've built a total of three teachers that have uh, been built that way. 
one who is a grant my partner Matt has been kind of grandfathered into teaching because he taught he was coaching as I was coaching um, but the other uh, two I got built up in the drop-in process and then uh, two more teachers that have been built up through that and I'm really proud of it every time we get a review back because uh, we always uh, every six months we review all of our teachers um, and then we often send out reviews after different classes with newer teachers um, uh, to to see how they've done. And, and like lately our reviews have been great. So I'm really encouraged by the that reviews process. are, uh, evaluations and surveys from the students participating. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, we're constantly giving notes to, to the teachers during the drop-in process. So they don't need, um, they don't need a general re review process. Every single class we go out to lunch with them afterwards and go, this is what, uh, this is what we saw. What do you, you think know? are some of the biggest notes you're giving to new teachers for them to work on in the classroom. Yeah, different um, different teachers have different styles, but I'll say like some of the most uh, important notes are: I uh, make sure that the students know you care, connect with them. You know, they don't know they don't care what you know until they know you, that you care. And uh, also, make sure that they know that you are committed to them growing as a student. Connect with them. Uh, I have not had to give like empathy notes as far as like make sure you're nicer to people, you know. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't foresee us being in the kind of improv training school that we have someone where like you know someone's a little bit more aggressive. Um, we also say like keep your energy level up. Um, that uh, teachers should earn the chair or not use the chair at all, you know, um, and always be engaged. There's like. Uh, Along those lines, I also tell my teachers, you should warm up, too, beforehand. You should walk into the workshop warmed up uh, or choose warm-ups that get you warmed up. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I, say, I say the biggest notes are that. Uh, How do you think they could show more that they really are there, uh, committed to the student, and really care about the student's growth? One of the things is uh, always sincerely... Uh, it's like a hard thing to explain, but sincerely connecting to, with them and like giving them positive feedback as well as when they do give a critique, it, it comes from a place of like, man, I so want you to be great at this. I was there too. Like uh, empathy with them be like, I struggled with this. I've been through this or I've worked with other people that have done this and they've grown. Uh, I can already, I can tell you can do this, you know, like that kind of support, uh, empathy and then uh, giving them an honest, fair critique that, uh, that is embedded in kindness. Uh, so you clearly then have a personal philosophy when it comes to teaching. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're going to have some kindness in there and definitely a lot of empathy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's huge because uh, at the end of the day, uh, I want them to walk out going, wow, that was a really great environment. I had fun and I learned. You know, and for people that like I know I run into this all the time where people go, you're too nice. I need to find like a uh, like a more direct or meaner teacher, you know, um, and I think what they really mean is uh, someone that it's so funny. I think what they really mean is the note that moves them. They want to get rid of that kindness to get to, to like the absolute kernel of truth. And at a certain point, like if I coach somebody or I work with somebody a lot, I can be. Uh, more direct with my notes. Uh, but in the, in the beginning, especially in a drop-in, no, we're about, I'm making you feel safe. I want you to be able to take risks, uh, to connect with the community. It's a big, you know, that's a huge part of what we do. Without the level of classes, and I don't think one way or the other is in any better or not, I, but what I've been hearing from people with who have leveled classes, for sure, is that as they get to the higher levels, their notes and teacher, as a teacher, will change and will become sort of those harder notes and whatnot. So without the level classes and more of on a focus per class, um, are you? do you shift that at all? Or do you just kind of know, oh, this person has been through this, so now I can get maybe more direct. Is that what's going on in that? Yeah, well, if you, this is the way I think about it. Um, first of all, I know my students from like their first drop in to as they go through our focus classes, we know them. So we kind of know what they're struggling with. But also a huge to this is they different advanced improvisers make different mistakes. 
if your notes are tailored to the to the thing that's going to help that improviser, it doesn't matter what lo level they're in. You know, uh, it, it, so like if someone a very early, a very early improviser, we could be like, oh, you need to express your emotion on your face. You know, like show us your emotion. Uh, as it goes on, uh, then the, the note for an emotion, it could be like the next level note is make sure that when you're typing, if your character's angry, type angry. You know, that's not something like a day one note, right? So the notes uh, are tailored to the mistakes or the inadequacies of the performer. Um, so once a performer essentially levels up to where they're consistently showing us facially their emotion, then they never have to get that note. You know, uh, so I, in a way, I think their actual improv skills dictate the level of notes we give them in the focus, uh, not the level that they're in in the class. With that in mind, then, then you also don't have to run into telling a student they're not going to be moving forward because they're a focus issue. So they, so you can say to them, uh, you probably want to come back to this focus at some point, right? Is that how that's happening? Yeah, so what we do, we, uh, we do have to tell them sometimes they're not moving on, but this is how we explain this. Uh, when you have, um, because we do a certification process, okay. once you've, uh, uh, we give every student at our, our, uh, our school a handbook, and in that handbook it explains all of our focuses, um, and then why they're important, and then like our general philosophy. But in the front of it, we have a thing called a passport section, and we have stamps for all our focuses. So if they have shown that they are consciously succeeding at the focus by the end of the four weeks, they get their stamp. Um, so we do have to tell people that you haven't earned your stamp at this point. Um, we couch that by uh, early on in the process explaining to them that we want the stamps to mean something, not only for us, but for them. We want them to have earned them. And we tell them our, our clear criteria. We want you to consciously be succeeding at this Meaning consistently, most of the scenes you do, you are expressing this particular skill and um, and using it correctly. And then at the end, uh, the four week after the fourth week class, uh, we have another teacher come in and lead them in preparing them for their student show. And I one at a time peel them back into an office, and we have a one on one about their current skill level and let them know whether or not they're earning their stamp and what they need to work on in order to earn it. Then we let them, the next time that class comes up, we let them take it at a, a, an incredibly uh, small, like an incredibly big discount. They can retake the class over and over again as needed. Um, so that's, that's essentially how we, we let them know that we, if we don't give them a stamp, it's our commitment to them. It's easier for us to say, you've passed. You know, It's harder for us to keep the standard, but it's ultimately better for everyone involved that there is a standard to which they have to earn to get the stamp. So you have created this handbook, you've created these standards, how, so how does your teachers, yeah, how do they say to, you know, if they're coming, so for example, let's just go through something, like somebody, it's not you teaching a class, it's another teacher teaching a class, and the teacher sees, you know, that uh, John is not meet, how does he know that he's not meeting the standards for whatever that focus is? And then how does he come to you and say, Hey, I'm about to pull, I'm about to not allow this person their stamp. So, uh, so we have the first section of week four is approve it. And it's the thing we're working for the whole time. Right. Um, and in that approve it, we say, these are the three things we're looking for. We're not looking for you to be great at improv. We're not looking for you to be funny. We're not looking at you to show any other skill to consciously succeed at uh, minimum, we want you to consciously succeed at the actual skill we're looking at. Then uh, the teacher that's going to show them how to get ready for them sh their show and the instructor watch the prove it, lead them to the prove it, and keep notes during it. Then after the prove it, we go take a meet, like a 10 minute meeting where we go through each student and we talk about the merits of whether or not they've passed the criteria. We do our best to remove the subjectivity of it and just look at the actual standards. Were, like if, I keep saying emotion because it's an easy one. Were they emotional? Did they say why they were emotional? Um, you know, uh, essentially, uh, whatever those criteria happen to be, and they're lit, we tell them day one, and we go through them in our notes when we have our meeting, and then we go through them in our one-on-one -on -one meeting with them. Uh, we want to remove the objectivity uh, from all of it. I'm sorry, the subjectivity of it. We want the objectivity. We want them to not argue with us. We want them to realize, oh yeah, you're right. And we go, we can go through scene by scene of the prove it and say, well, when you did this or when you did this, um, that was you not 
doing what we're asking for or not matching the criteria. So we think you should just take this class again. Out of all the people that we've had to have that conversation with, because I would say we are at about a, like, a little under a 50% stamp rate, um, and it's just because we, uh, we're committed to it, you know? And, and I, uh, here's one thing I will say that I, I see that as uh, we need to be better at teaching it if we're not passing that many people. So we work on constantly evolving what we're teaching. But uh, out of all the people we've told, which is at this point almost that you have not gotten your stamp for this particular class, uh, only one person has reacted negatively. Uh, two people have gotten bummed. And everybody else is, I get it. You're right. I didn't do it. I want to take it again. And some people even get the stamp and go, I want to take this class again anyway. So I think preloading it with our commitment to the standard and making it uh, as objective as possible uh, prepares them to know that them not passing is, an is a passability. And not only they can look at their own performance and go, yeah, I didn't get it. Um, so we're just trying to be as upfront and clear with them as possible. Uh, we, have, we have a very high success rate. Most people, because I start every one-on-one -on -one with, how do you feel that you are doing with this focus? And for the most part, they say things I agree with. As you just said, though, that you, you know, you're always looking to be stronger teachers and so that you guys can work on that. So what are some things that you guys are doing to be better teachers? So, well, one of the things that we, we try and build in, uh, at first we were doing a lot of exercises um, and not enough reps. And then we were like, wow, there needs to be more reps. We can tell them stuff, but they need to get more reps. Um, also, uh, incorporating side coaching, having them focus, keeping them refocused. Right now, no, nope, be emotional. Show us why. You know, having those buzzwords with them. Uh, one of the things, too, that's going to help us a lot is the consistency of the vocabulary that we use and what we teach. We want every teacher to use the exact same words so every student knows what this word means and this vocabulary means so everyone can play together. So we're trying to create an environment to improve what we do. Um, we're always looking to get better at teaching by studying improv from everywhere we can, learning from different people, um, always pushing ourselves to take workshops, um, to always continue to be students, because being a good student can help you be a good teacher, um, but also creating the parameters in our environment of how we teach that maximize success. Uh, I feel like we, uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is the improvement I do see with students. Uh, someone that is uh, Someone that had came to our class there's someone that came to our class that we thought, wow, this is going to be a really, this is going to be a fight. Recently, he became certified, um, and he does good improv. You know, the others fine-tuning to be to be had, uh, always. I mean, I've, uh, you've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time. I need to be fine-tuned. Uh, but to see that someone can walk in the door, shy, quiet, not very emotive, and can leave... Uh, doing all the stuff, using all the folks we talk about is just proof that we can do, like what we do works. Um, so it's just going to, I mean, what it really comes down to getting better, reps, creating the best recipe for success, um, uh, having a healthy dissatisfaction with your current level as a teacher and as a student, you know, not beating yourself up for not being perfect, but also knowing that you're not perfect. You know, uh, that's it. So it's a mentality and an environment. Uh, I love the idea of all your teachers having the same vocabulary that they're going to be working from so that there's consistency across the board and with students. Um, is that something you guys, uh, obviously you're making a conscious effort to it, but just like you sp provide students with this handbook, do you provide anything for the teachers or is it just like, let's go to the coffee shop and talk about the vocabulary we should be using? Well, currently all our teachers are homegrown and committed to that, um, that they are people from our community. I think that not only uh, encourages students to stay committed, encourages people in your community to keep going because they're like, wow, this person went through the program and now they're teaching, you know, that kind of deal. Uh, so they know the vocabulary because I've been using it as we go. But also the vocabulary is in our handbook. Um, so it's there too. And, it, and like we're consistent about it. This is, the, this is the phrase we use for this. This is the phrase we use for this. Um, it is a, it's one of those things where I have friends that have gone through IO and people that have gone through UCB. There are things about UCB that I don't dig as far as like their philosophy. That's just my personal take. It's totally sweet. There's so many pathways to heaven. But the one thing that you gets that's so right 
is that they teach a specific method from day one through the end, and it's consistent, right? Uh, and like, I freaking love IO, but IO is very teacher dependent. You're going to get an amazing teacher like Paul Valancourt on, on level one. He's going to teach you triangle of the scene, and you may never hear about triangle of the scene the rest of your levels ever again, right? And so I think that like while IO has amazing teachers, and I love learning from them, they don't have the consistency of that vocabulary, so that students that graduate students that graduate from those programs could have an, ex, an entirely different experience. So I wanted to make sure that we created an experience for our students where if someone that graduated or got certified now can meet someone that got certified in two years and they could play together and they'd use the same vocabulary and they would know our methodology and our style, but not as rigid as the issues I might have with like a UCP. It's less rigid. There's still the exploration, there's the relationship, there's the ability to take risks and not just focus on one element of improv. Um, I wanted to synthesize those the good from this and the good from this and come up with um, a plan that I thought was the most effective for improv. I want to go back. You you alluded to like a student walking in the door, and you're like, uh oh. When when you when you say uh oh, is it difficult because maybe there's su- like because to me there's very different types of students. When we say uh oh, one is the person who's so either shy or scared or timid, and you're just like, oh, I don't want to break the baby bird. Let's see what we can do. And then there's the person who walks in, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this person wants to come in and rewrite what we're doing, and now I'm going to have to deal with that. Yeah, uh, I think that most students, like 90% of people that walk in the door, fall in those parameters. There are people that have no confidence in their ideas, and then there's people that have so much confidence in their ideas, no no one else's ideas matter. And part of our job is to get this person up here to to respect the ideas of others and to have confidence in the, in the other people in the scene. And then this person to have confidence in their own ideas and find the equilibrium between the two. And it is a different process for both people, right? One, you need to prove you don't need to try to be funny. The other one, you need to prove whatever your ideas are, are amazing. Just say them and we'll live. We'll, we'll be fine. Uh, then, like, so that's like 90% of the people, right? And it's just a matter of breaking those two down and like everyone's different absolutely we're all snowflakes but i noticed those two and then there's also two tracks to me too there's another like there's another scale to me which are people that are idea people and people that are performers right and i want uh i want to take the idea people and make sure that they are performing that they know that this is a theatrical art and they need to emote and they need to show more information than say emotion right and then uh, for performers, I just want them. Usually, uh, performers are great. It's just a matter of teaching them, uh, teaching them that their ideas are amazing, and they just need to do them and express them. And they don't need to talk. You know, they, there's different kinds of performers. But like, essentially, I have, there's idea people and performers, like people that are like going to be emotive and people that are going to be huge and expressive and stuff. And sometimes you need to teach them to be more human. The idea player needs to be more human, and the performer needs to be more human. We just need to find the, the equilibrium. Let's work on the student, though, for a minute, who really um, is just stuck on, I have to be funny. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at it. I'm going to, you know, just kind of push my way through it. And how are, so how do you personally, you know, tackle that kind of student, that kind of situation? Well, there's different versions of it. Um, but one of my favorite exercises I learned from um, Annie and Levin O'Connor, they call it uh, bullshit. I don't know if I can curse on this, but you can leave it. I think. Oh. You can. Yeah, I, I put an E on the okay. iTunes. <laughs> um, where two people have a scene in the audience, if someone in that scene ever says something that they feel that that character wouldn't say, they say BS and their scene's over. And I think the person that wants to be funny is a person that wants stage time, right? So they have to go, well, I want to be on stage. Because they do. They want to perform. They want to make people laugh, right? That person that wants to be funny. So if you create a carrot system of like, no, if you want more stage time, you need to be more genuine. Uh, then they can start to like fight that mentality a little bit. Um, but also, one of the, and the other thing is, at the end of that go, wasn't that a good scene? Wasn't that fine? Wasn't that interesting? You know, and most people go, yes, it was. You'll let, I'll ask people, were, were any of you bored? You know, and rarely do people raise their hands. Uh, 
So you like it's interesting. You don't need to try so hard to be funny. So that's a person that's like wants to come in like Robin Williams. You just need to show them. You need to prove to them that they don't need to tell jokes to be funny. Then another thing I do is usually people that are trying to be funny or youngsters. I also will give them verbal restrictions. Um, things like uh, you can only say one sentence. Um, you know, limiting their ability. Like essentially I teach a really big, I take that Dell Close quote that bring a brick. Uh, uh, the quote is, don't bring a cathedral into the scene, bring a brick, we'll build a cathedral together. And I expand that metaphor into your, your line is your brick. And if you come in with a bunch of bricks, it's really hard for the other person to be in response. And the biggest impact you're going to have with an audience is when they're in response, directly in response to the line before. Right. I'm a big believer in the cause and effect of a scene of just following the line before being in response to right. Never getting out of that. Um, so I'll say like you can only say one sentence because that's the clearest way for your scene partner to understand what you mean and for them to be in response to that idea. Right. Uh, so I start breaking down the domination they might have in a scene or the, what they feel their anxiety about being funny or being entertaining and say, so you don't have to worry about that. Just say your one line and make it in response. Then another thing uh, I show is we'll do, uh, I'll try really early to switch their focus from being funny into being genuine by saying like calling them out on it. Oh, you told a joke, you know, uh, that's a joke. Don't tell jokes. Uh, and then I will say like now, I will examine with them what what you telling that joke was something your character wouldn't say, which is how I define a joke when someone's trying to be funny. If you say something your character wouldn't say, you have now violated your character for a laugh, and now the scene is lesser before is lesser after it, right? And I try and examine and show like now we have to live in a world where your character said what they just said, and it's not the world we lived in before. So I try and show them the the damage in a way to the long-term quality of the scene based on them telling a joke uh and then we'll say let's just go back and let's say what a person might say and hopefully that scene will show the quality of not having told that joke versus the scene that where people are just telling jokes and they're not committed to it um we uh, i also teach organic improv um which is not idea or premise focused at all it is only commenting or being making what's important what is already there right so that kind of gets rid of their slate of jokes they want to walk in with um because usually what happens is uh for me anyway the people that want to be youngsters will hear the suggestion and then they'll try and come up with a funny premise right all the time when i hear when i see someone starting a scene before they connect to their scene partner and make the matter i will say nope start again because you're coming in with your bit, right? You, you didn't even look at them. You didn't connect with them. They didn't matter at all to your idea. And so a matter of that, just like constant calling them on it. Nope, you came in with a bit. Connect to them. The reality, like the information for your scene should come from your scene. And if you're not looking at your scene partner, you are not connecting to the actual scene that's present. You are trying to infuse an idea into the scene. You're trying to invent right then and there. And that's not what we do. I... So to break that down, I create a methodology for our students, how they handle suggestions. Um, and that is, that's part of our vocabulary, that's part of our thing. When you hear a suggestion, you can ask yourself this, these particular questions, and the answer to those questions uh, are the only thing that you can start a scene with. So for instance, um, uh, if the suggestion is duck, I say, one of the things is, how does a duck make you feel? And someone could say, Oh, relaxed, because I think about being in a park or whatever. It's like, okay, so you're going to be relaxed in the scene. And that's the only thing you can start with. One of the things that I teach people, and I think this helps break down the youngsters, is uh, your, if your idea cannot be expressed non-verbally at the top of the scene, it is too complex of an idea, right? So that means that you should, uh, that you should scrap it and just do the most basic version of what can be expressed non-verbally. Um, once you break people of the habits of trying to come in with premise or their idea before they even connect and that it's stronger for them to be genuine than funny, I mean, this is a comprehensive issue and it's not something that's going to be solved in one, in one workshop. Um, but once you start that process, I've noticed people that start to then go, man, I told a joke, darn it. You know, and they start going like, okay. And I go, great. I'm glad you noticed that you did it. 
Don't beat yourself up. Knowing that you, knowing that you messed up is uh, is conscious failure, and conscious failure is a really important process to getting to conscious success. And so you have to recognize, it's like, great, you're you're getting better. You now know you messed up. You know, that's a really fun, important step because you can't go from unconscious failure to conscious success without first going to conscious failure. So, uh, you know, I celebrate that with them, but I make sure they're not beating themselves up over it. Classroom management skills, which I know is not like a exciting topic, but I think it's a super important topic, especially for newer teachers. Uh, what have you, what do you employ? What have you learned? What do you want to tell people when it comes to classroom management? You know, I wonder how much of it is like innate and how much of it I've learned. So let me talk about like what I've learned, you know, um, one of the things in classroom management is I use the word focus a lot because <laughs> I think it's like a nice way of telling people to be quiet, you know? Um, and so sometimes people jibber jabber or they want to keep talking about the last scene. You know what I mean? So I say like, Oh, let's focus. Let's focus. Let's give them the attention they deserve. You know, uh, that kind of thing. That's something I've learned. Um, I'm not sure if that's what you particularly mean by classroom management. No, absolutely. Right. So classroom management can be as easy as like, I come in and I turn down the thermometer because I like it cold or I set up the chairs because I like them in a way. But also I'm dealing with adult learners. And yeah, sometimes we get chatty. And so how do we deal with that? Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. So I tell them to focus because it seems like a non-jerk way of telling people to be quiet. You know, <laughs> essentially that's what it means. Focus, focus. And then also uh, creating a creating the atmosphere of we respect each other's scenes. We respect each other's performances. So you say like, you can say things like give them the respect they deserve. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, that's one of the things that's huge to me. I have, uh, one of the things that I'm a really big proponent of is, is having, um, consistency in the format. You can plug and play different exercises, but I love to have like the same thing for every class in a way. Like we always end on a thing called liked and liked or learned, where everyone in the class expresses either a moment that they laughed at or something they enjoyed, or a moment that they learned or aha or something they discovered during this thing. And I always end every class with that because it gives me an opportunity to make sure that they're walking away with the right lessons. It also gives them an opportunity to compliment their fellow students. And another way of after they say something in their own words, I get to solidify it with our philosophy to make sure that we marry it, uh, their idea to our idea so they understand. And I understand them so we know that they're getting away. So it's like that's something I always end with and people love it. It's like a – and also it's a great cool down. You know, like you know, uh, it's a great way to just end a class. So I always do that. I always start – I some people can get bored of this. It's fine. I do variations of the same warm-ups every time. But it's a variation. Um, and I do that because I want people, first of all, that's when people show up late to our drop-ins or whatever. Right. And so I want them to, if they show up late to know, Oh, I know exactly what we're doing. You know, they can just walk in and know. Uh, but also, uh, I can use that as a lesson for every new student, um, and that walks in the door that they can do it. And I can always get that moment to say, if you've never done improv before, you are now an improviser because that warm up is the essence of improv. Right. It's so like, well, I do a word. I do versions of a word association game. And I was like, one person says something and you are in response to it. You improvised, you know, uh, you let them. So then, then from there, I do a high energy warm up. could be a different thing. So I always do those two uh, warm ups. Usually I do like a song circle thing. And then I get into it, explain the lesson. And then we do the exercises and then I give them reps. And then we end with a like and learn. So that is the skeleton of our class. I, the classroom management of that makes it easy for me. Because I know what section we're in, it makes it comfortable for our students because they know where we're at. You know, it's but we are always learning different things. I've gotten better at uh, stopping stuff or letting people know they can always stop a scene. This is something that's happening like in improv right now. It's it's something. Unfortunately, when I started teaching, I wasn't as sensitive to um, uh, just because I get walking around with my privilege. You know what I mean? And uh, I just didn't realize. And now I realize, oh, yeah, in order to create a safe environment, you have to make sure that you let everyone know that they can stop things and that they shouldn't do things, you know, and, and using those as teachable moments and not moments to make people feel small. I was going to say, no, I love that we stumbled on that because I think that's one. I think that's great that you're able to recognize that the conversation has changed a bit since you started teaching to now and that um, whether you were 
less aware or more aware, but just knowing that you needed to change it to have those stop, let's have that teachable moment. Um, but I think it's really important to talk about like how that conversation is somewhat facilitated because not every time when something is done, is it malicious or it's, you know, it's most actually like 90% of the time for me, it's, I see a student doing something who, when I stop them and ask them what they said, all of a sudden, like the eyes get big and they're having these realizations. So talk about how you approach, yeah, let's talk about how you approach that and, and those teachable moments. So there's, there's a myriad of ways to do it, but I think if I was going to talk about the most consistent way, what I say is you can be the type of, like tell like an off-color joke or something. One of the things I say is you can be the type of performer or comedian that you want to be. Like, whatever your heart tells you you want to be. I'm not here to censor you. But in our classes, we want to create um, an environment where everyone feels like, oh, it's, I'm totally welcome and comforted. And like it's fair for people to have heard what you have said and not feel that way. So just know that when you're in here, you just got to be respectful of all that stuff. And you as a performer can do whatever you want on the teams you're on or whatever the scene you want. Be the type of performer you want to be. But in here, we need to be the most welcoming version of uh, improv we need to be. And like usually people are like, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, also, I'll say things along the lines of uh, uh, just be careful when you're touching someone that you have the understanding that they're okay with it. And if you don't, then err on the side of not touching them. Because in drop-ins, we'll have people that have played together for years and then people that are only there that day, you know? So there's a big mix of that. So you just have to make sure to know. Um, you just have to make sure to know that when those moments happen, just be like, just be uber respectful. Err on the side of being respectful and you'll be fine. Um, and that's that generally works. Uh, uh, yeah, that's essentially I just try and let them, like, cue them into the empathy of, like, sometimes the things you do make other people feel bad and you shouldn't do that, you know? And uh, it's totally okay. We've all made these dumb mistakes. I've made them, you know? And it's just a matter of we don't make them again, you know? Uh, it just err on the side of respect. That's uh, usually how I handle it. Have you had any students stop scenes specifically to say I'm really uncomfortable right now? Yeah, they've done. Uh, uh, when they do, I usually just reinforce it's a thousand percent okay. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for, you know, you're totally okay doing that. It's just an improv scene, it's Kleenex. You didn't, you didn't hurt anybody, you know. What you did was totally sweet, and I'm glad you did it because it makes you feel better now. Uh, take zero, like, take zero issue, like, oh, I messed anything up. You didn't mess anything up. It was great. Um, I just want to empower them and let them know that they didn't do anything wrong, that they, they felt that way and they acted. They did something great. And let the other person know, like, just be careful because what you did made someone feel uncomfortable um, and know that you should err on the side of respect again, you know. Uh, I just don't ever want anyone to feel bad uh, in any part of it. I just want them to move on and grow. Also, like, that is such a, it's a rare issue, if that makes sense. Because uh, for the most part, it's usually the yucksters that are, like, we're talking earlier about the yucksters. Those are the people that are aggressive. Um, you know, they're the ones that, like, are going to go up and grab someone's neck or something. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa you know. What are you doing? You don't even know her. You know, you don't even know him. Uh, so you just watch those people. I, if you're constantly breaking down that uh, aggressive style of play, you usually nip that in the bud pretty early, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's how I've dealt with it. I haven't dealt with anything as ugly as where I have to like, whoa, you know what I mean, pull people apart or anything. And it's one of those things where like I haven't been in that situation, so I don't know precisely how I would, would act. I just hope I'd act properly. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I specifically remember being put into an exercise, but we were told that this was going to bring up a lot. It was an emotional exercise. And I won't run this in my class because I don't have, I don't feel as a teacher, I have enough training as the teacher to run that level of emotional exercise because it can really bring out a lot, uh, especially if you're going into anger you know, it, it, so I, like, I love, I, I, I love the exercise. Like I can see it so clearly in who I was with and I just won't run it. It just won't run it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It does matter. Like what you're doing can lead to things, you know, um, and being totally okay with someone that shows up and they're like, I don't want to do this. You know what I mean? Like, or I'm going to just watch, you know, which does happen. Uh, I never go anyone to going on stage or trying, you know what I mean? Like even, uh, I never be like, come on, everyone else is doing it or any of that stuff. If they don't come up, it's probably because I can create the kind of atmosphere that would make them come up or want them to come up. So it's on me. 
there were a couple of times where like a class was like, you haven't gone yet, do you want to go? You know, but it's never like, you should go. Uh, but yeah, avoid the exercises that that you feel are unruly or, or unwieldy or hard for you to control. Yeah, definitely weird. Like, cause I do a lot of grounded, real scene work and sometimes weird things come up and I always preface everything with like, this is going to be weird or emotional or even dark. Uh, if you're not okay with it, it's totally fine. If that's, you know, one of the things, cause we do a, an exercise called bad news to good people, right? Where, uh, we have one person have to tell someone they love bad news. And sometimes it's like, you know, like I've been cheating on you or whatever. You know what I mean? And like people can get like emotional. And I was like, I want you to be genuine in this. Uh, usually people walk away going, that was the best improv I've ever done. You know, like that kind of thing. But sometimes people go like, ah, oh, this is a little too close. And I go like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's just scrap it. I'm sorry. It's on me. Sometimes I get, I always take all the blame. I, you know, sometimes I get overzealous. I apologize. I'm sorry to put you in that position. Just always take the blame. Just eat it. Um, so everyone feels better. The student who, um, when you are giving notes, who's just not, who's just super resistant to taking a note and feedback. How are you handling that student? Reinforce the philosophy behind my note. Um, I spend it more on that than making it about us personally. So, like, if I have someone that wants to do something because it's funny or whatever, and they maybe they've trained somewhere else or whatever, they'll be like, well, you know, I've learned this from here. And I go, I, most of the time, I'll be like, that's great. Just right now, uh, we're rare that we really teach organic, grounded improv, and that's the methodology by which we're expressing it. And you are totally welcome to be the type of performer and use the philosophy you want. Um, but here, that's what we're, we're asking you to do. And I would just, you know... Uh, Take a risk and see if you dig it. If you don't dig it, then you, you know, then then we're great. Then you found out something. We discovered something about you. Uh, if I find that people are taking notes personally, I have to find time. I will walk away from it then, and I will find time with that student when I can, and be like, being open to critique is such an important part of this process, and you can't take it personally. Uh, you have to know that first of all. All of my notes come from love. I want you to be amazing. I, you know, I love like I love the kind of performer you are, or what you're trying to be. And everything I'm saying is not to make me feel good. It's to help you be to be stronger. So know that they all come from a great place. Also know that um, this is essentially the process that you've come and you've joined this class. And what you're saying is there's a tacit agreement that my views on this subject are something that you respect. Right, And if you can't make that agreement that's totally understandable, you don't have to. But then this can't be the place for you, right? Because you have to agree that, I'm a, that, you are, that I am someone that you want to learn from. And if this is just for reps, then I don't think this is the right place for you um, because we're teaching a very specific philosophy. So I find those moments to connect uh, and let them also know that like it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. It's part of the process. Every failure is another step toward being great. I try to inspire them that way. I find, because usually it's an insecurity. So I find the thing that I do love about what they're doing and let make them know like, oh man, I really like when you do this. This is great. I just want to make sure that this other element of your play can be as good as that. You know, and that's why I'm talking about that. Um, and uh, like, let them know that I'm on their side. Uh, the, what I was saying earlier, uh, just always be like, I'm with you. I believe in you. Uh, I know you can do this. I'm giving you the tough notes because of how much faith I have in you to grow. Uh, know that it always comes from love. And usually that works. I'm not there to fight about a note with someone. I just don't see a lot of merit there. They can either take me uh, on face value when I have a conversation. They can be like, oh, okay, I agree with you and you're right. Or they probably shouldn't study from me. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's so many places to study. They don't need to study with me, you know. Uh, and I will, I will say like, oh, you should probably go to this place. You know, they do that. Uh, yeah, that's that's generally when I've encountered that. Um, that's how I deal with it, and I've had a extremely strong, strong success rate. Uh, I don't know because with a drop in, people just don't come back, um, and that's fine. Uh, with the focus classes. We rarely have someone not come back to those, like when they like later, like as the course goes on, you know. So uh, I haven't encountered that in a way. I mean, I have encountered a student that essentially disagreed with my note, like, "Oh no, I actually did that well," and and 
it's tough, but you just have to go scene by scene and say like, when you did this, that wasn't what we're teaching, you know? Um, and would you, like, what I realized is it wasn't about the scenes. It wasn't about me that they were going through a tough day. And I was just another person telling them no. And so at that point, just softly and sweetly get away from it and just hope to revisit it later. You know, let them have time with it and say like, let's talk about this later. You know, like let's, let's gather ourselves and in the future we can sit down and chat more about this. Um, and that worked. The, they ended up writing me and saying, I'm past it. I'm sorry. You know, also uh, another thing is when I do get an emotional reaction, I let them know that it's okay. Uh, it's like, it's totally okay that you're reacting like this. I understand it. I've been there. I don't hold, I don't, I don't blame you. I don't hold ill will. I don't think, oh, wow, they can't take it. Um, that you're just having this reaction in the moment and I have them too. And let's just, you know, let's just uh, get through it. Know that this doesn't need to be a negative thing. And I don't want it to be that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You're, you're still, uh, when you perf do you perform in front of students or are you just performing where there's no, where your students aren't watching right now? Um, no, I perform, uh, at my theater and students watch. Um, in fact, one of the best compliments I've gotten recently is, wow, you play just like you teach, you know, and they loved it. Yeah. And it, cause that's huge to me. I can't tell you how much I don't like it when people teach this philosophy and then you watch them play and they don't do it. And I go, if your philosophy was so great, why aren't you doing it? You know, um, I definitely perform in front of my students. There is a weird pressure. Yes, that's what's going to be my question is, is do you feel that weird pressure that uh, I know I feel some days when yeah. that's gotten better as I've been doing the teaching part of it longer. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, there's, so go ahead and, and tell about your experience with that then. Oh, man, I have, there's lots of weird pressures because, you know, uh, like you, I represent a company. Um, I also represent a community. I represent a philosophy. I represent an art form. Um, I am the like head teacher of all of our students. So I represent them. So like, if I don't play well, I'm, I might be diminishing how they perceive their value and the, the, their investment. So there is those weird pressures and it's very easy to let them pass the partition into how you perform. Uh, and I definitely failed here and there at that. It's also the same thing I feel. It's a very similar partition I, I erect when it comes to being a producer versus being a performer. Like when you work really hard in a show and you look out there and there's only 20 people and you go, well, okay, that's what it is. And I have to go, I am not a producer right now. I'm a performer. So it's the same partition I have to put up. Uh, if I'm so focused on being uh, good, I hurt my chances at actually being good. I can't control the result. And this is something I teach a lot, everyone. I can control the process. I cannot control the result. So I have to, as a performer, separate all of that and know if I focus on the process, my batting average of being uh, performing quality improv scenes goes up. So let me control what I can. I can control my focus. I can control being emotive. I can control being connected. You know. Uh, those are the things that I can control. So I put my heart into those. I cannot control whether the show's good. Have I fallen short and where I've let the pressure infuse itself into my performance? Oh my gosh, yes, I have. I haven't done it in a while because I know there's no fruit on that tree. Uh, so you have to create a partition between the parts of you that aren't a performer and the parts of you that are. And the performance needs to be about the performance. It's not easy. But you have to do it. I love that. It's. I think that's going to be great because uh, it is. It's a unique challenge. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. And because then you walk. Here's the other thing. You walk away from a bad show, going, "I didn't just have a bad show. I didn't just let me and my team down, or the night down. I let down a theater and all these. You know. Oh my gosh, we already beat ourselves up enough. You know, if it's a bad show, we already walk away with such sadness because of the opportunity. You know. Um, you can't do that to yourself. And one of the things I found is if you can take that bad show and make it a teachable moment for the students that were present, 
that you're putting it to good use, right? If you say like, oh, like last night, I was in my head during this scene, you know? And like you can turn it into, you can be an alchemist and turn your lead into gold by letting it be an example. And also be an example of how you respond to bad shows. If you have a bad show and you walk around like it's the worst thing ever and you mope or you beat yourself up, you are, you are still teaching. You're just teaching bad lessons. And you're going to have people not have fun about it. So walk off going, walk off going, uh, like there's all kinds of different ways to approach it. You can be honest. Like I wasn't happy with it, but it's a show and there's stuff to be learned from it. And ultimately it was another day of performing improv, which means it was great, you know? Or you could say like, oh, there was tons of stuff about that show I loved. I loved this moment and this moment and this moment. And then I struggled in this moment and this is how, what I learned from it. Um, because you, one of the things when you are a teacher or a community leader is you're never off. You are always one of those things. You can't give in to your lesser demons and get vindictive or like beat yourself up because they will take those lessons from you. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I've had to come to grips with that when you sign up for this gig, you need to be above that. You just need to be above it. Have your moments, but make sure you're not influencing other people because um, it's ultimately it's not good for you. Right. Uh, I think that's also some great advice for people who are thinking about shifting from just performing to teaching. Yeah. Um, that teaching is going to have a variety of unique challenges. Uh, what's some advice that you would give to people thinking about taking the role on of, as a teacher? Uh, one, do it for the right reasons. So many times I hear people say they're doing it for the money. It's not a lot of money and they'll smell it on you and you're going to hate yourself for it. Uh, I, you know, like I, you know, I think I just smell it. I smell it on people. Um, you have to, you have to know that you are dedicating a section of your life in the art to not yourself. You have to give over a section of your life in this art to the growth and the joy of others. And if you can't do that, if you can't put a ton of your like emotional stock in the joy of others, you should not teach because uh, you teach because you want other people to be great and that you can take what I call the joy tax. When they get a laugh or they have a, a growth moment, I have to go like, oh, part of that, part of that makes me feel good, right? If that economy doesn't work for you, then you can't do this. You're going to hurt your students. You're going to hurt the art. You're going to hurt yourself. Um, and I think some people are so swept up in like the mythos of who they are as a teacher, like they're trying to create like a myth about themselves or that they are so swept up in how great they are as performers, which is fine. Be your best, the artist you can possibly be, right? Um, that they shouldn't be teachers. Because, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a bargain that people aren't aware of that. Oh, I'm now going to put a lot of my love and energy into other people's growth, which means I cannot put that growth, that love and energy into my own. So there's an opportunity cost to it and the money isn't worth it. If that economy doesn't work for you. And we're not even talking about a lot of money, which always, uh, I, I find, <laughs> <laughs> It is so less than minimum wage and like all the money I do make, I paid in learning what I'm teaching, you know? Uh, yeah, I get it. You go, wow, he's walking away with like, you know, a couple hundred bucks or something here and there. And you go, yeah, but like, I mean, I spent this much learning that and I had to drive here and you know, like all this stuff, I go to different markets and teach improv and I definitely want some money for my time, but I'm okay with almost any split they offer mostly because I just want to connect to another community. And I, I know that I'm like, personally, I, a lot of people don't teach what I teach and I really believe in my methodology and I really believe in like my methodology helps all methodologies. And so like I go, I want to go to that community because I think they should hear what I'm saying. They should hear from this point of view. And I know that's like hubris and arrogance, but like, I just, I guess there's always a hubris and arrogance involved in teaching, you know, like I know what's right. Right. Um, 
So, uh, but I go, wow, they're gonna, I'm going to benefit from connecting to these people, making an impact on their performance and making that community better. And so like, yeah, as long as I can eat and I can get gas home, I'll do it. Um, uh, and I think if you're not willing to do it for just the experience and the connection that you shouldn't do it. I just, I think so many people get into teaching because they're like, well, now I got to make a little money back for all this money I spent. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't, I don't, that's not good enough. Uh, you have to be so passionate. If students smell that you're there for the money, they will stop coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And that also taints, it just also taints the well for the rest of us. And it just, just makes it a lot harder for everybody else who really are doing it for the right reasons, um, for their love, for the love of the art, for the love of the community. Awesome. Do you have any, uh, well, first of all, where can people find you online if they'd like to reach out? If you're listening to this, I probably want to connect with you. You could totally find me and friend me and message me. Let's chat. Let's be friends. (laughs)